the rustling of pages. It's a beautiful sound. Psalm 73, let's begin in verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, as people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have, it, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you when your spirit interrupts what we're doing and uniquely leads us in a specific way, and you have this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would use these verses and this psalm to build into our lives the needed perspective that uh, some of us uh, lose at times and maybe have lost at this current time. Redirect our focus and our mind and encourage us, Lord, that you are sovereign and you are in control. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I sense the Lord lead uh, me to this psalm this week to redirect our attention. Because in this world, uh, the world in which we live, we see this world really changing in many ways, and it's increasingly more and in, growing in its wickedness and its rejection of God, and it's basically its assessment that the ways of the Lord are not worthy to be followed or adhered to, 
and biblical principles are not uh, a good priority. And, and so it's, it's important for us to really see God's perspective because good is referred to as evil increasingly and evil is referred to as good. Those uh, in many parts of the government, both Republican and Democrat, independent, uh, many of them are increasingly uh, in it for themselves, what they can get out of uh, you know, serving in government and so forth. Some of them, when they leave government, they become uh, lobbyists and become wealthy. And, and, but not just our country, but in many different countries around the world, it seems like things are getting worse and worse and worse, that people are getting more and more corrupt, those that are in authority, and, and the, they're making laws that are more and more unbiblical. And what it seems to us at times is that there's no end in sight. Sometimes we look at it and we just... We, our heart sinks because we just say, where is justice? Where is, where is uh, you know, people standing up for the things of God? And how come it's going this direction? And we see people receiving injustice all over the world. We see them cry out for help. We send millions, probably billions of dollars in aid to these different countries and these different governments. And so much of it never, ever reaches the people that are in need. So often the, the needy and the hungry and those that are oppressed and the refugees and that are going around just trying to find some semblance of normalcy in their lives um, don't get any help at all. And, and, and it's, it's a horrific thing. And we can forget that God uh, sees every bit of it and his heart is more grieved than ours could ever be grieved. So these leaders, they're ravaging people, they're, they're, they're taking advantage of, of uh, the vulnerability of certain people in this world. And, and they are gaining in prosperity. It appears that they're thriving. It appears that wickedness is triumphing in many ways in, in, in other parts of the world and in our country and so forth. And so where, where in this world are we to find justice and where are we to, to, to see what, you know, how, God, do you weigh all this out? And, and it can be very discouraging at times. And so God wants to redirect us. And, and we love the Lord. We're wanting to obey the Lord. We're wanting to grow in our relationship with him. We're wanting to do what's right. We all know we're not perfect, but we're growing. Most of us anyway are growing. And, and so we're trying to, quote unquote, play by the rules and trying to do what's right. And, and, and it seems like at times others aren't trying to do what's right. And yet, yet they're getting ahead. And, and we, we, we're working hard and we're doing uh, you know, what we're supposed to do. And it can seem like we get passed over on the, on the promotion. And so-and-so is cheating. We see them behind the scenes doing what the, what the boss doesn't know about. And they're doing what's wrong and they're cutting corners. And they're heading off people and, and doing uh, inappropriate things to get certain sales or, or credit for certain things. And then they're getting promoted and they're prospering. It could be very discouraging. And so that can, that can be very dis- disheartening to us and, and even depressing <laughs> at times. And so maybe some of us aren't going through that now or we're not troubled by the direction of the world and, and uh, decisions that leaders are making, but it's going to happen eventually in some of our hearts. We're going to hit this. If we're not hitting it now, we're going to hit it eventually where we're going to look at how this world's going and we're going to get discouraged. And it might stumble us. And it might uh, make it to where we're not seeing God who he is. We're not seeing his perspective in things. And so as we look to God's word, first of all, we see that there's nothing new under the sun. 
Because this isn't the first time that the world has been in rebellion to God. It's been in rebellion to God this whole time. And this isn't the first time that wicked people are allowed to prosper and subdue or to put down godly people, take advantage of them, or, or just be cruel to people in general, and they seem to get away with it. You know? So really the issue is not why do good things or why, not why do bad things happen to good people. That's a whole nother study. That's a whole nother sermon. There's answers to those types of questions. But it, the question really is, why do good things happen to bad people? That's really what is at stake in this psalm here. Why do good things happen to bad people? And as we will see, God has an answer to it. And there's an answer related to, or how we find out the answer, is seeing things the way that he sees them. That's the, that's the crucial issue. Because when we're seeing injustice, when we're seeing things go the wrong direction, when we see laws get passed that, that uh, are validating ungodly behavior and redefining marriage and, and all, <laughs> legalizing you know, drugs in certain states, and we, we start to see all these things, these propositions and things, and, and, and we can get so discouraged and we have to recognize that God's perspective is the only one that's the correct perspective. Because when we're in the middle of it, and we're struggling in the middle of it, saying, why, God, do you allow this, and so forth, our perspective can change, and we can forget that we need to see, through, see this world through the lens of how he sees things. That's why it's so important to go through the scriptures. And in my view, especially verse by verse, because you cover all of the content, and you get his perspective on everything that he wants to speak to our lives about. And so that's, that's important, and that's what we'll see as we look at this psalm here. Because the ungodly, he, he doesn't miss the ungodly, he sees the ungodly, he sees those that are prospering that are ungodly, and he has a definite perspective related to that, and what, what's going to be, uh, what's going to be made of them, and so forth. And so we struggle against this. And what God wants to do is for us to correct us if we've gotten our focus on, on the wrong thing. He wants to get our focus off of the wrong thing and onto the right thing and start seeing everything through his, with him, his perspective through his eyes, so to speak, and then everything can change. Because if we start putting our trust in that which is temporal, and we start putting our trust in, in uh, this life in terms of what I get in this life, remember, this isn't our home. This, this world, we're just a passing through, as the famous saying says. We're told in Scripture, our citizenship is in heaven. We're supremely a citizen of, of heaven, far beyond any other citizenship that we may have. So if we put our trust in the wrong thing, we can be disheartened. And it can even affect us to the point where we're like, well, why should I even continue to serve the Lord? It's not getting me anywhere. And that's the wrong perspective, which uh, we'll look at this morning. This psalm was written by a man named Asaph. Uh, he was an, an organizer and leader of the tabernacle choirs under the, in the days of David and probably continuing on into Solomon's reign uh, in, the, in the temple once the temple was completed. We're told in First Chronicles 25, verse 1 and 2, that this man prophesied according to the order of the king, that is, King David. And in uh, Psalms 73 through 83 have been ascribed to him. Also, Psalm 50 has been credited to him. He was a, he was a prophet in a sense of he prophesied and he, he gave God's perspective to man through his uh, uh, ministry and his ministry was in the context of leading God's people in worship, and that's noteworthy. 
And it's noteworthy because those, even those that have developed a close relationship with God, even serving God's people, and even in the leading of God's people in worship, can be discouraged and get their focus off the, wrong, the, the, the right thing, onto the wrong thing, and it can affect even God's people as they, as they attempt to serve them. So they can struggle with these things just like anyone else. And so he, wants, he, he just communicates honestly, and that's what I love about so, much of the, so many of the Psalms, is that the writers are just honest. No, there's no negative confessions going on in these uh in these psalms they're 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 just expressing the psalmist's heart and where that psalm psalmist is and so much of what happened with david in his life and i know this isn't a psalm of david but with so much of what happened in in david's life we get to see the benefit of in the psalms that he wrote and and so he went through all that he went through and it affected what he wrote to god and what he sang to god and how he wrote these Psalms, and it was the case with the other psalmists as well. So, this is a person that's serving God, that loves God, that's that's inspired by God in many ways through the gifts that he had. But yet, he still sees the prosperity of the wicked, and he still sees these people getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And he struggles, and he's honest and open with his struggles. But by the end of the psalm, as we see in many psalms. God gets his attention, gets his focus back where it needs to be, and he sees the situation through the lens of how God sees the situation. And I think that's what the Lord has for us this morning. Now, the, the psalm divides up this way. Verses 1 through 3, Asaph expresses the apparent contradiction between the goodness of God and the prosperity of the wicked. There's an apparent contradiction. And then he says in verses 4 through 12, he describes what appears to be an accurate description of, of the wicked. And I say appear, appears to be because when we're in that situation, when we've got our focus in the wrong place, our minds are vulnerable and we start seeing things a certain way that doesn't necessarily represent reality. I don't know if you're, if you're with me here. I've been in places of discouragement and, and depression or whatever, and I'm focused on certain things and not focused on God and his word and what his word says. And it can seem so much worse than it really is. And then once God redirects my attention and gets our focus in the right place, we said, wow, that it wasn't the situation. It isn't nearly what I thought it was. Well, that's going to happen with Asaph here. Verses 13 through 16, he describes his false conclusions, which originate from his distorted perspective, because that's what happens, isn't it? We have false uh, you know, perspective, and then, it, then we come to ultimate conclusions about the situation and ourselves based on distorted so-called facts. Verses 17 through 20, he gets to God's perspective of the wicked. And then lastly, in verses 21 through 28, he breaks out into worship as he believes God's perspective. I can know it. I can be re- it can be revealed to me, God's perspective, but it doesn't mean I believe it yet. But when as an act of my will, as an act of honoring God with my faith, I say, I believe what you say, then it's transformative in my life, and then I want to break out and worship to him out of thankfulness for how he's changed my perspective. And so that's how it, it divides up. Now, in verses 1 through 3, again, he starts here with the apparent contradiction between the goodness of God and the prosperity of the wicked. He says in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful 
when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So in verse 1, he affirms the goodness of God. He, He knows that that's true. He's not doubting the goodness of God. That in part is causing the contradiction in his mind. He knows God's good. So he's weighing the goodness of God with the the prosperity of the wicked, and he's having a hard time reconciling those things. God, if you're good, why do you allow this? And and why am I going through what I'm going through uh, if if you know I'm not wicked and, and and so forth? And so when we struggle with why God allows the wicked to prosper, we do believe God is good. We do. But we have a hard time accepting if he is good, why is he allowing these people to prosper? But then in verse 2, he says his feet almost stumbled and his steps had nearly slipped. And I, again, like his honesty. He's not pretending like there's this, that he's, he's great and everything's just, uh, you know, just fine with his life. He's being honest. And he's being honest for, <laughs> for, for everybody to see. I mean, this was written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. So, you know, so we have almost 3,000 years of God's people knowing that Asaph stumbled related to these things. I love that transparency there. But he saw the, the wicked prosper. That was the first issue. And secondly, we're told uh, that he was envious in verse 3. I, for I was envious of the, bo- the boastful. So here you are trying to do what's right, trying to do what's appropriate, you're trying to serve him with your whole heart, with everything in you, and then you're seeing others that have a totally different heart for God uh, not struggle at all. And they're just doing, you know, you think about this wealthy, wealthy people in this world and powerful people, and they're living their life like there's no problems, and, it, it, and they just have no needs whatsoever. And, and you're going, here I am struggling, and I'm trying to serve God and put him first, take up my cross daily, following, trying to follow him, and so forth, and then I get, I get passed over for this, or how can God allow these certain people to do well? Again, the problem is how do, how do God allow bad uh, people to, to, uh, to have good things? So we can become discouraged and even depressed over it. And like I said, you're passed over. Uh, maybe maybe you're, you're in a family where you're trying to do what's right, and you're, and you're taking a stand for godliness in your family, but then other people are not taking a stand and everybody sides with them in your, in your family and not with you when you're standing up to the things of the Lord. It's, it's really hard. And, and so we know that God's stamped within us a sense of justice. We're trying to stand up and do what's right. But then uh, we're, we're, it seems like sometimes uh, other people are, are blessed because they're, they're doing what's wrong. And, and it's not because they're doing what's wrong. And there's, there's reasons why that happens. And so this man is dealing with this envy and he's dealing with this seeing this prosperity of those people and he's just saying it's not right I want that and 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 that can creep into our hearts and so God wants to protect us against that now in verses 4 through 12 Asaph gives his description of the wicked and some of it is accurate and there's a lot of it that's not accurate. Like I said, the, the perspective can get skewed when we're in the middle of discouragement and we see things a certain way that doesn't necessarily represent reality. So he says in verse 4, For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. Now, is that true? There, was there really no pangs in their death? Were they really, you know healthy all the way till the end of death and, and never have to deal with the, the, the pain of suffering and all of that? That's not the case. 
They, they really did have to deal with death just like everybody else does. But it appeared to Asaph that they didn't have any issues with that. And they just live long lives. And then uh, when it's time for, for them to die, they just die. And there's no struggle. There's no discouragement related to it. And their strength is firm all the way to the end. That's not true. And it says they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Now, this is obviously a skewed perspective. Oh, these people, they don't, they don't deal with trouble. They don't deal with being plagued and having all these issues. And that, that's how it can appear to us. Well, we're, in some, we're related to somebody or we know somebody that is wicked. And it just seems like they don't struggle ever. And things come easier to them than they do for people that are wanting to please God. And that's not true. That's not the true perspective. But it can seem like that when you're going through that kind of situation. It can seem like that, in fact, it appears here that they actually get preferential treatment above the godly, not just equal to the godly, but they actually give better treatment than what the godly experience. And so he's saying, that doesn't seem right. This is what, how I see things. Verse 6, therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. This is how he sees them. Now, that's, this is probably an accurate description. That they wear their pride like something to be showed off. You know, that's something that they want everyone to see. Like, you know, in, in school you have a show and tell day. You know, where you bring something to show the class. They're showing off their pride. And they are, their whole life represents boasting and what they have and what they've accomplished. And they wear it like a piece of jewelry around their neck. And violence covers them like a garment. Which is describing probably the, the means by which they accumulated this wealth. That they did violence, they stole from people, they, they did things, horrific things to people in order to get an upper hand in, in whatever they were about. And so because they used violence, they were able to accomplish what they accomplished and they were proud of that. Then in verse 7 he says, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. Now what, what it means by their eyes bulge in abundance is that they have so much abundance, their eyes are are bulging because they have so much to look at in terms of their wealth that their eyes are bulging. They have to strain to see all of it because they are, uh, you know, having so much things that they get to enjoy. And it says they have more than their heart could wish for. They just, they they could never ever wish for more than what they already have. And, And that's, I doubt that that's an accurate description either. That they, I'm sure that they wanted more. They wanted even more than what they had in there. But they're just saying they have more than they could ever dream of. And here I am trying to do what's right, serving in, in, the, in the, uh, the ministry of the Lord and so forth. And then the wicked, they just seem to do better and better and better and better. And so he's dealing with their uh, abundance here. And it says in verse 8, they scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. So he's saying they, they hurl all kinds of insults about God or to God in front of people. And, and they blaspheme all the time by saying evil about God. And, and they, but it seems like they still prosper. It seems like they still get more and more and more and more. And he says, therefore, in verse 10, his people return here. And waters of a full cup are drained by them. And this is talking about the, the sustenance and, the, and the, the, the refreshing water that, that what comes out of their life. People keep coming back over and over again to, to get their thirst quenched by them. People follow them. They have a following. 
People go to them for, to have their needs met. You know, we see that today in our, in our culture where it seems like people go to the ungodly for help instead of going to the church for help like they should go to. Because the church has been called to lead and to bless and to be an influence in this world. The ungodly hasn't been called to that because they're serving themselves. But sometimes it seems like people are attracted to the ungodly instead of being attracted to people who are in the truth. And so it's stumbling him. And then specifically what they say, verse 11, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? So they're, they're again, hurling these these insults, these questions here. How does God know? He doesn't know what I'm about. He doesn't know what I'm doing. Obviously, he, has, he isn't stopping what I'm doing. And so how does he know? If he cares and, he's, and he wants me to do something different, then how come I'm still doing what I'm doing? How come I'm allowed to do what, I, what I'm about in terms of this ungodly behavior? Hey, how does he know? Because if he did know, he'd stop me, but he's not stopping me, so he doesn't know. And, and that's why they say, and is there knowledge in the Most High? How can there be knowledge in him? When I continue to, to do these same things and, and he's not stopping me. Behold, verse 12, which means con- carefully consider. The word behold means carefully consider. These are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. So that's his perspective. They're always at ease. They weren't always at ease, but it seems like they're always at ease and in many ways, they were at ease, but that, but uh, and and they shouldn't have been. But it, you know, he's he's just saying it's frustrating that these people are prospering. They increase in riches. It appears that they're being blessed, but we know that you're good. See, that's the contradiction still that he's grappling with. Well, you are good, but yet these ungodly are are prospering and they're increasing in riches. How can that be possible? So that's his description, again, from a very, very limited perspective. This man is, is stumbled, he's struggling, and he sees this description as reality here, and he's bringing these things before the Lord. Now, he says in verse 13 through 16, he talks about uh, the, you know, the, his struggle, the specifics, and he says, especially with these, with these uh his description of these people, how it, he came to ultimate conclusions about his own life because of it. That's how much it affected him. He says, surely, notice the first word there, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, why do what's right? Why would God allow this to happen in me and it doesn't do me any good? Not, that's another way of phrasing it. I've here I am trying to do the right thing, having my heart right before God, not wanting any ungodliness to be found there by staying close to him. But it seems like it's all been in vain. And, and I've washed my hands in innocence. In other words, I've committed my hands to do what's right. And, and what, what has it got me? What, what good has it done? And, and, he, and so that's the power of the, dece- the deception. When you see ungodly people rule, and when you see wickedness increase, and when you see good be called evil, and evil be uh, called good, and you see this world go the wrong direction, and it's going to increasingly go there, and we're going to see it in our lifetimes more and more and more. What God's trying to inoculate us from is to think, well, they're winning. So obviously what I'm doing is a waste of time because 
If it weren't a waste of time, then they wouldn't be going forward and prospering and going a certain direction. He wants to protect us against that because we're, again, if we're going that direction in our heart and in our mind, we have our, our, our faith in the wrong thing, we're focused in the wrong place. So he's just being honest with his heart here and just being honest with where he's at. And then he says, verse 14, for all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. This is the description of someone that's taking up their cross and following him. I mean, I know that he didn't have that as a, as a uh, specific commandment, but he's, he's, want, he's, set, he's set apart for the Lord's purposes. And he's being chastened. He's being plagued with, with uh, you know, hardship and, and temptation and all these things that God's people have always dealt with, being dealt with and chastened every morning. Notice he says every morning. This is a daily thing for him. God's dealing with him with a heavy hand and a sense of conviction. And, and he's saying, why? Why do I go through all of that when these other people are not being chastened every morning and they're going this other direction, but yet they're blessed? He said, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. You know, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 that if we're not chastened by our heavenly father, we're illegitimate sons. So when we're chastened by the Lord, it's a sign that we're legitimate adopted sons and daughters. That's a sign of blessing when we get dealt with like that. Sometimes we think, man, he must love me a lot. And I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm his son or daughter and I just get dealt with a lot. He's really showing me how blessed I am because he's constantly keeping me on a short leash and dealing with me on very specific things in my life. That's a sign of the blessed life. If you're being dealt with left and right by the Lord, by his spirit, convicting you of sin and dealing with you in a way saying you can do better than this isn't what I have for you, you're, you're blessed. And, and that we have to recognize that holiness is its own reward. It's a blessed life and a privileged life that gets to live a life like God. And he says, be holy for I am holy. But his perspective, Asaph's perspective is, look, I've gone through all of this and hasn't really gotten me anywhere. And, and he's not seeing where the real treasure is. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, carefully consider, I would have been, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. If I would have spoke these doubts to others, uh, it would have been revealed to not be true. In other words, he's saying, if I would have expressed all these things, if I would have spoke this, then, then it would have been untrue to the, it, w- it would have been, it doesn't make it true just because I voice it out. And we think, well, if I don't say something, it's, it, it's not going to be validated. But when we speak the things of the Lord and we say the things that are true about him, God's people know if it's true or not. They know if it rings true in their heart. And if it's not true, it's, it's revealed to, to be false. And he's saying, so if I would have said this, it would have been revealed to not be true. I know it doesn't make any sense, he's saying. There's something called cognitive dissonance where you believe two contradictory things at the same time. And, and that's kind of what he's going through. He knows God's good, but he sees the prosperity of the wicked. He just doesn't know how these things can go together. And he's struggling. And so he, he says, I, it, it would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. So again, he's grappling with it. He doesn't know how they both can be true at the same time. But he said, when I even thinking about it, it was too painful for me. Because at one, one side of it, he's saying how God is good. And he knows that's true. But at the same time, he's looking at the prosperity of the wicked and, and doubting why he's doing what he's doing. It doesn't seem like it's really worth it. And he feels bad about it. 
And it's causing inner turmoil in him, and it was just painful for him to consider. But now we see in verses 17 through 20, God's perspective. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Everything changed when he went into the sanctuary of God. Why? Because he got God's perspective. Because God's revelation was there. Remember, he was, a worship, he was in charge of overseeing the choirs there in the tabernacle. He was in charge of, in part, of leading God's people in worship and pointing people to God. So the, temp, the sanctuary of God, the tabernacle for him, meant, meant that God was in control. It meant that we worship God because of what he's, uh, how he's blessed our lives. And, of course, God's word would be read and so forth. And the Psalms are filled with, with truth that, that point us to God. And so he went into the sanctuary of God and he understood their end. Whose end? The end of those that are wicked. And, and that's the important thing. It's not where the wicked are right now. It's where the wicked are going to end up. And that, that gives us perspective. They can enjoy worldly success now, but their end is horrific. And he says that in verse uh, 17. He says, then I understood their end. It's all about their end. Because people can accumulate wealth now. They can get power now. They can set laws in motion that change the fabric of society that they think are going to go on for millennia and changing this this society to a utopian society where every single thing gets gets provided for people by the government. And, and, uh, you know, eventually this whole world's going to be a one-world government, and it's going to probably be very socialistic. So it all makes sense that it's going the direction that it's going. But they think they're going to get away with that forever. They think they can shake their fist in the face of God, and that's going to be the final say. And when we're out there, out from among God's people, and we're trying to live our lives and do what's right, when we see the prosperity of the wicked, we can think, and it just it's like a mirage in our minds. We think that this is just how it is. This is, this is how it's going to stay. And these people have the final say, and they don't have the final say. Because look what, look what God's perspective is in verse 18. He said, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Now in verse 2, he said, His feet nearly slipped. But in this verse, he says, You set them in slippery places. He said, my feet nearly slipped. He didn't say they slipped. They nearly slipped. But here it's, it's definite. He says, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. One of the most perspective-giving passages in the, in the whole Bible is in Revelation. And we're going to get there when we study through Revelation verse by verse. But when we get to that great white throne judgment. And we're not going to be there, at least for, to be judged. And, every, and it says the Lamb's Book of Life will be opened. And it says other books will be opened. And it says all those whose names are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life will be cast into the lake of fire. Where the, the Antichrist, the false prophet and such are, are thrown there. And, and that's, the, that's at, the, at the end of the millennium and, and it's way at the end. But the, the point is their end comes. And we don't want that for him. God wants us to reach the, the wicked for him. He wants us to preach the gospel. He wants us to love our enemies. He wants us to turn the other cheek. He wants us to be salt and light in this world. To not just recoil and get in our little bunker and say, oh, their end is coming and, and just be an island to ourselves. That's not what he has for us. 
You know, the, the, the government in Rome was one of the most wicked governments the church has ever experienced. And they were not, woe is me, and oh, we'll just give up and just be, uh, you know, reclusive and hide in our bunkers. And, uh, you know, they, they weren't like that. They were, they were, God, you want to use this opportunity for your purposes. You want us to be salt and light. And they asked to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. And there was an earthquake, and they were refilled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. In the context of a way worse government than we see in any, probably in any country in this world. And so that's the, that's the perspective that God wants us to have. And then he continues in verse 19. He says, oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. You know, from our perspective, when we see the wicked prosper and in control and doing all these things that are affecting many, many lives, it just appears to us that they are so solid, that they are so strong, and that they're, they have so much resources, and they're just going to stay there forever, and they're, they're, they're never going to come to the end of, and be judged of their behavior. But it says something different in verse 19. In a moment, that's God's perspective. In a moment, he brings judgment. There's so many rulers that we see in the New Testament. They took glory and they're, they're, the earth swallowed them up, you know, instantly. I mean, there's instant judgment that God uh, can bring in this time, but then also in, at the time of the end, there's going to be in a moment an incredible time of judgment and them being consumed with terrors. Verse 20, as a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Now, he's not saying God's sleeping you know, he's taking a nap right now. He's saying he's not actively uh, judging those people at that very moment. And he, he's using a metaphor to describe the fact that because he's not doing anything right now, it appears that, you know, nothing's happening. But there's going to come a time where he is going to act. And, he, and he's going to uh, quickly do something. And in a moment, they're going to be uh, dealt with very specifically. So, again, he wouldn't have this perspective if he weren't around the things of the Lord and if he wasn't in the sanctuary of God, and to see how God really sees everything. Now he breaks out into worship in verses 21 through 28. And he begins with repentance. Look at that in verse 21. He says, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind, which means to be distressed. I was distressed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you, which means that, you know, he's without knowledge. Basically, he's saying, I come to, just like a, a, a beast doesn't have senses like a human, I was like that. I was dulled to the reality of my spiritual senses, and I was like a beast in that way. Beasts don't have a spiritual capacity to understand truth and to weigh spiritual with spiritual things. That's kind of what he's saying there. And he says, I was greed. I was distressed in my mind. I was foolish and ignorant. And it's appropriate that he's saying these things to God because he's saying, I believed all these things. I should know better. Not only am I a child of God, but I'm a, a leader in, a, among your people in leading people in worship. And I should have known better. And he's, he's saying, I have all these things built into me already, and I lost my perspective. And I forgot what the truth is related to these un, ungodly people and where you're going to take them and how you're going to judge them in a moment. And he's just saying, I was foolish. I was ignorant. And he's starting this worship with repentance. Then he says in verse 23, nevertheless, this is where he's believing God. He's, he's staying in faith here. He's saying, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. 
you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. This, can, this cannot be said about the ungodly. He is not continually with them. He doesn't hold them by his right hand. He will not guide them with his counsel and he won't receive them up to glory. What a contrast. All those things are true for the child of God because he is He has opened up his heart to God and he is a follower of God and a worshiper of God. And because he is chastened and because he deals with those difficult things, those are the the, the evidence of the fact that he's in the truth. So much of the time, the things that we go through, the trials and so forth, that are beyond what the world goes through, are added on because we are Christians. And Jesus told us it would be so. He said, in this life, you will face tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. If they receive my teaching, they'll receive yours. If they reject your teaching, they'll reject yours. No servant is greater than his master. So we have to recognize as believers that uh, he is all those things to us and he's not going to be those things to those that are, are in rebellion to him. And he says this beautiful expression of faith that I am continually with you. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he says, you hold me by my right hand. And, and, and it, it, to me, it just shows the picture of a child. Because that, you know, as a child, you just reach up and you know that that parent's hand is there. And they take you across the street and they're holding on to your hand tighter than you're holding on to theirs. And it just shows how strong they are and how protective they are. And you feel safe and secure. You feel like you're in a, a place of safety. And that's, the, that's what he's communicating. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. See, that's what the ungodly are lacking. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, we're told. They don't have any wisdom, true wisdom, because they don't have any fear of the Lord. And so it's encouragement for us that we're the only ones that have the truth. Remember, Jesus at one point said to his disciples, are you going to leave me too? Because people were, seems like he did a bad job of getting the church growing. Here he is, you know, saying things and the crowd's getting weeded out more and more and more. And the disciples are looking around going, Did he not get the memo? I mean, we're supposed to increase in numbers and we're going down, you know, and he's saying some very difficult things. And he says, are you going to leave too? They're just like, where else are we we to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. That's it. And and so when he says, you will guide me with your counsel, it's the the words of life in the gospel is the very beginning of revelation for us to have a personal relationship with him. But then as we walk with him and as we feed on his word and as we grow and as we're getting changed moment by moment, day by day, by his word, through his spirit, then we become more and more like Christ. And we, we treasure that counsel more and more and more and more. Walk with the Lord 22 years and I value his word now than I ever have. Because I've seen the wisdom of his counsel. I've seen how, how right he is. You know, he said, wisdom is justified by her children. That's what Jesus said. And if anyone wants to know the doctrine, let him read what I have to say and obey what I have to say and see if they don't know wisdom. Because the, the life that's surrendered over to God and, and obeys the counsel, not just hears it, but obeys it. Remember, he said, the wise man that hears my word and obeys it is the one who builds his house upon a rock not the one that just hears it only so his counsel is to be valued in the sense of obedience and then he says and afterward receive me to glory even then they had that hope back then three thousand years ago that we'll be caught up to be with him forever and that's the end the 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 ungodly will not be received up into glory they will be resurrected at the great white throne judgment for judgment 
So they will be resurrected in that sense, but it'll just be to be judged. Then he says, this is just more expressions of faith and worship. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. In other words, not wealth that comes through ungodliness, not all the things that this world has to offer. Who, who have I in heaven but you? And there's no one on earth that I desire beside you. No person, no thing, no accumulation of wealth, no position, nothing. I, don't, I only desire him. He's enough. So often in different circles within the body of Christ, his, his, all the things that, that we get as a result of our relationship with him sometimes is focused on too much. He's the reward. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. He's the reward to know him. Not just all the things that we get, which he's very blessed that we get to experience as a result of knowing him, but him, himself. He, what makes heaven heaven is that God's there. Not the streets of gold. I guarantee you, you would not and I would not value the streets of gold in heaven on that day if he wasn't there. It would be empty as if we made streets of gold here and he's not with us. So he is the reward. And then he says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So I may fail, which he did. His heart did fail. And, and his flesh failed, and he could be at the end of his life. We don't know here when he's expressing this, but he's saying to God, no matter how, this is worship again, no matter how weak I am, no matter how much I fail, uh, you're the strength of my heart, not riches and fame and all these other things, and my portion forever and ever and ever. What a great thing to say to God. There used to be a song we used to sing when I was a new believer, God is the strength of my heart. Anyone remember that song? Just me? I was the only one that sang that? Okay. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Uh, and I used to sing that as a new Christian and be so excited and so thrilled that I was on a new path and that God was everything to me and I had left everything that wasn't even worth anything that this world valued so that I could follow him. And so what an expression of worship and faith. He says, for indeed, verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Now this harlotry is a spiritual harlotry. And all through the, the, the Old Testament, when the Israelites turned away from God, he called it harlotry. And he, call, he called it adultery. And, and he, he, there, you, you don't have the marriage of, of, of uh, God and, and his people only in the New Testament. It's, it was even in the Old Testament that he was considered, uh, you know, the, the one that we were married to. And, and even back then, and he's saying, you've turned away. So it, you, you, you are far from those who perish. See, in other words, in contrast to you being close to me and never leaving me, you are far from those who perish and, and they will not uh, come back to you. But he says, verse 28, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. And that's really the solution to all of this. The reason why he went into the sanctuary of God to get that different perspective is because he was drawing near to him. And that's the solution. When we look at this world and we see where it's going or we see others prospering when we're trying to do the right thing and we're passed up or we see this world going in the wrong direction and it's getting wickeder and more and more ungodly all the time, when we're discouraged about that, we need to come back to God. 
And we need to draw near to him because then we get his perspective. And then we realize how valuable what we have already is. And we're not striving for this ne- the next thing, the next thing, the next thing to try to get uh, you know, some kind of comfort or, or um, you know, have our needs met. We realize we already have everything that we need. That he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, as Peter says. Very important. And then he says, I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. So that's what he's called us. He tells us, I, you have what you have, and I've blessed you how I've blessed you, so that you won't be quiet about it. And again, that's, as we see this world get worse and worse and worse, he's called each one of us to do what the end of verse 28 says. To, to, to declare all his works. To be salt and light, to glorify our, um, to, to do good works before men that we, that they may glorify our Father which is in heaven. That's what He's called us to be and to do, is to be salt and light in this world. We're gonna have to deal with the prosperity of the wicked. If we're not dealing with it now, it's gonna happen for sure in the future. And again, this world's getting worse and worse. But we are vulnerable when we're discouraged. And so he wants us to stay close to him, to enter into his sanctuary, to enter into his presence in our prayer closet or just having our time with him or being among his people. We can't leave those things out. We need to be consistent because when we're not consistent in those things, the perspective of this world starts to creep in. We think that we're not susceptible to it. And even one of the leaders, like I said, Asaph was a leader and close to the Lord and had a long history with God. He was susceptible too. And so it can, it can, we can think we're above that. We're always going to realize these things. It's not the case. We have to guard against that. We can forget also that God is leading this world somewhere. He's leading the, 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 these events in this world. And we're living in the last of the last days. I'm convinced of it. He's leading it in a certain direction. And we have to remember that. There is going to be a one world government. It's all going to be tied together, and the Antichrist is going to lead over it. And there's going to be a seven-year tribulation, and in the middle of that seven-year tribulation, he's going to pour out his wrath on this world. And so they can think that they're getting away with all of this, this wickedness and all these things that are contrary to God's word, but we have to be reminded that God is setting something very unique up in human history. And, and he said, Jesus said in Matthew 24, that the time that's going to come on this earth is going to be something that's different than anything in the, in the past that's ever come on this world or ever will come on the, uh, this world or will ever come to pass. We have to recognize that he is telling the truth. And so we have to remember, we're going to, we win. We've looked at the end of the book. We win, church. We, 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 we win in the end. We're the one that are not at the, the great white throne judgment. We're not going to be here when he pours out his wrath upon this world. We're not going to be there for that. And, and so we can't forget that. We can get so short-sighted at times and think this is all there is and this is how bad it's going to get and this is what we just, our new normal and we're just going to get into this little, uh, you know, cubby hole <laughs> and we're going to hide and, and just hide our, our light. And God says, no, turn on the high beams. Turn on the spotlight, because when it's darkest, that's when the light shines the brightest. And our emotions can get yanked all over the place with how much wickedness we see. But God says, you are not at a disadvantage because you have my spirit and you have my great commission to obey. And I've called you to do it. Now get out there and do it and not get, you know, the Eeyore syndrome. Oh, no, (laughs) it's all over. All of us, myself included, can get there, can go there at times. He says, be triumphant, be victorious. I've already given you the victory. You're more than a conqueror already. 
Go out and in the power of the Spirit and, and do what I've called you to do. And not hold back and not be intimidated by this world. Because the enemy comes in and says, this is what he wants us to, to believe. Listen closely. He wants us to believe that we're losing. And that we might as well just give up. That's what he wants us to believe. That's a lie. God says we're already victorious. Already. And that we have the, this gospel that is powerful for salvation to all those who believe. And that he's given us this great commission to reach this world. And he's going to bring in a harvest of souls. And I believe there's going to be a revival that, that happens in some pockets at different times. There is going to be a great falling away too. But, but we can't stop. And the enemy would love us to stop. But he, and he knows his time is short. And he's, he's walking around like a lion seeking whom he may, may devour, as Peter says. But God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness and his word. His promises are still yea and amen. And so we're called to go forward in boldness, not in our confidence in ourselves, but in confidence in his word and in the power and the gifts and all the things that accompany the gospel and so forth and and to expand the kingdom. He says he's given us the keys to the kingdom. He's telling us, you know, we can uh, preach the gospel and say that your sins are forgiven or your sins are retained. He's given us authority related to the gospel to preach the truth. And so we can get our eyes in the wrong place, start trusting in the wrong things. And he just says, you win. The battle's already won. Go out in my strength and my power to do what I've called you to do. So we're going to do it. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you've already given us the victory. And thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. You are in control, in control. We thank you, Lord, that no matter how bad this world gets, you've already told us it would happen. You already told us we have the victory. You already told us that you've given us everything that we need to fulfill your your plan for our lives. So I thank you for interrupting us in our, in our regular study as we go through the Bible and redirect our paths and our focus and put it in the right place. We trust you, Lord. We know what the end of the wicked is. And Lord, you want to use us to, to, to bring the good news to the wicked so that they can come to know you. I pray that we'd be busy about your business in that way. And I pray that we'd go forward, Lord, in boldness. We thank you, Lord, that you win in the end. We thank you that you are in control and you're leading this all somewhere and that you're in control. Bring encouragement, Lord, where it needs to to come in our hearts. And we thank you for how great you are and how big you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.